Good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We want to say happy Palm Sunday. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is what people shouted and declared as Jesus entered Jerusalem on that Sunday before his death. Uh, Let you know about a few things that are going on here at the church. This Friday night, we will have a Good Friday service at Faith on Hill at 7 p.m. There'll be a time of communion, a time of scripture reading, a time of prayer, a time of reflection on all that Jesus has done for us in his suffering on the cross. Additionally, uh, on The next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we will still have our online service, uh, but we will be gathering for Easter Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at the church. Uh, We're going to have same rules for Good Friday apply as normally do on Sunday, you know, masks, uh, social distance, the whole thing. Uh, But Easter Sunday as well, in addition to our normal service, we're going to have a little uh, egg hunt for the kids in the church at the end of the service. And, and we've never done an egg hunt on Sunday morning in the church. It'll be something fun and different. Uh, so we're looking forward to that as well. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we have Zoom groups on uh, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. And uh, if you email smallgroups at faithonhill.com, uh, we'll get you that information. So uh, those are the big things that are going on here at the church uh, in the next week. Uh, also, uh, watch for this uh, during... Uh, you know, we call it Holy Week, right? Like the, the, the week leading up to Jesus's, uh, remembering Jesus's death and resurrection on Good Friday and Easter. Uh, but during Holy Week, I'm going to be online uh, just for a few minutes on our Facebook. Uh, you can look that up. Faith on Hill is, uh, you just search Faith on Hill on Facebook and you'll find us. Uh, but we'll be online um, doing just kind of a, hey, this is what Jesus was doing during this day of Holy Week. I did it last year, and I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a really good way to remember uh, Jesus' week leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we'll do that again this year. All right. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Zechariah. And you're like, where's that? It's uh, in the Old Testament, but it's towards the end of the Old Testament. So it's closer to the New Testament than it is to most of the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 9 as we uh, reflect on what Palm Sunday means and, and everything surrounding it. Well, happy Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter. Uh, Jesus rode from the town of Bethany on the Mount of Olives over to Jerusalem, and he rode on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem and the people, the crowds that gathered, they threw their coats down on the ground, kind of like the red carpet treatment. And they waved palm branches and they shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the word Hosanna means save now. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus was riding in, the best way I can describe it is if you know our, you know, the hill uh, that, that Hill Road, Faith on Hill Church is on, um, you go up to the top of the hill, kind of around View Acres Elementary, and you can look over and you can see Mount Talbert, Mount Scott, right? So the best way I would describe this is as if Jesus was uh, on a, at a village on Mount Talbert, got on this donkey and rode down the valley and then up 
to where, you know, View Acres is, our, our, our church, the whole thing. That's kind of the same idea, maybe not quite as far of a valley, but, but a similar idea in terms of what's going on. And so as he's riding in, this whole thing is happening, but this whole thing was prophesied 500 years before Jesus was born. We're in the book of Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah was an Old Testament prophet who, as I said, lived 500 years before Jesus was born. Uh, his, his writings are found in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scripture, uh, but they're closer in, in terms of page count. They're closer to the New Testament. So if you go find like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, find Matthew, start going backwards, and you'll find Zechariah. We're in Zechariah chapter 9 this morning. Zechariah chapter 9 says something you might find familiar. Check this out. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow, and I will fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, Zion, against your sons, Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign Lord will sound the trumpet. He will march in the storms of the south, and the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar with wine. They will be full like a bowl used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. This is God's word. And again, I want to emphasize this, written over 500 years before Jesus appeared. How would you expect a king to come? If you're told the king is coming, uh, the president is coming, the, this important person is on their way, how would you expect a king to come? I've never seen a king in real life. It's kind of a bummer, I suppose. I lived in England. I, I lived in a place that has a queen for five years, and I never saw the queen. I did see, um, uh, oh, what is, it's not Andrew, it's the other one. I saw one of her sons once um, at, a, uh, at a, a sports event. He was on the other side of the stadium from me, so I, I saw him through binoculars. Um, and I saw Tony Blair when I, when I lived there. Um, I believe it was the first time I lived there, but I lived there and he was the prime minister and I was in London on business. And while I was in London, I was walking down a road and I saw a big crowd and I was like, oh, I wonder what's going on. And then I realized, oh, there's 
the prime minister giving a speech. So I went over and saw it because I'd never seen a prime minister or a president in person. So I, I wanted to see that. And Tony Blair was exactly what you would think. There were important people around him. There were security guards. When he left, it was in a nice car. Like everything you would expect from an official visit. Here comes the king. And, and you kind of go with it. Oh, everybody's rejoicing. And he's righteous and victorious. I'm, and then he's lowly. And he's riding on a donkey. Now, to me, a donkey is a humorous animal. It's a funny animal. But if you live in that kind of agrarian culture where your wealth, your status, your importance is highly tied to your livestock, riding in on a donkey is not a mark of importance. They're, they're not great animals to ride on, let's be honest. Kings, conquerors, they ride in on chariots. They ride in on horses of war. They ride in being carried by slaves or servants. They don't ride in on a donkey. They don't ride in lowly. They're greeted by the most important people. And yet when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was greeted by the commoner, by the unimportant, by the lowly. How would you expect a king to come? The reason that Jesus confounded so many people in his day was because he failed to meet their expectations. He didn't fail to meet the prophecies concerning the Messiah. He didn't fail to meet the righteous standards of God's law. He comes righteous and victorious. And Jesus entered Jerusalem, beginning that final week of his public life and ministry. And he entered righteous and victorious, and yet he met none of the expectations of the important, of the culture, of, of anything, how you would expect a king to come. I still believe that Jesus is confounding and confusing people in our day because he doesn't meet the expectations. When, when I get around people who, who really have been radically changed by the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who, who have seen their, their sins forgiven, their, their hearts changed, when I get around people like that, I'll tell you what, they confuse and they confound. Who? The same people that Jesus confused and confound. Religious people don't like it because it doesn't meet their very nice and respectable and safe box. And irreligious people don't like it because it involves life change and it, and it involves heart change and it involves rejecting this world of sin and, and giving our lives over to the victory and the righteousness of God. How would you expect a king to come? And then when the king does come, what would you expect victory to look like? Okay, the king's coming. Victory is at hand. This is all really good news, by the way. Zechariah prophesied at a time after 
Daniel. And on Sunday mornings, we've been studying the book of Daniel, and we'll get back to that after Easter is over. Zechariah was born a few years, likely, after Daniel died. Um, you know, it, it, would, it would be as if, you know, when, when was I was born in 1982, you know. And so, you know, somebody, somebody lived, uh, and, and, you know, my, my, uh, my grandfather and my uncle both died in 1976. So they, they died six years before I was born in a plane crash. And uh, so I never knew them, right? But that's kind of the idea of the time frame, like very close. Zechariah was born just a few years, maybe less than 10 years, maybe as many as 20, but he was born just a few years after Daniel died. And he, and he was prophesying during the time of rebuilding when uh, the Jews had been allowed to go back and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. So here's Daniel prophesying the coming of their Messiah, prophesying a time of victory. And, and he's saying this in an uncertain moment. He's not, he's not saying it from like a place where everybody's like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, Israel is a nation on the up, you know. Israel was a wasteland. It was a conquered people. They're trying to scrape together their, their temple, but it, it's it's nothing. And here he is prophesying this. So what does victory look like? Verse 10, he says, victory is here. What does it look like? I will take away your chariots, your war horses, and your battle bow. Again, we don't think in those terms, but let's think of it in modern terms. I will take away your armies and your power. And, and these are the things that bring dominance and power. You know, that, that a, large, a large military, a large cultural influence. What, these are things that we would expect to have when you're victorious, right? When we ended World War II, we're the top. We're, we're, there's no question we're the world's leader. When we ended the Cold War, we had, we're the top. We had the best military. We had the most power. We had the largest cultural influence. We're winners, right? Americans know how to be winners. And what does victory look like in this prophecy? Disarmament? Removal of power? What's going on here? Just like Jesus confounded so many in his day because he didn't meet their expectations of what a king would look like, People are often disappointed by God's failure to follow their model of victory, their picture of victory, their timeline of victory. I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. About a year ago, just before COVID happened, really, um, I, I heard a lecture, and, and it was a testimony of, of somebody who had come to faith. And, and she, she had major, major life-dominating sins that, that she had said, I'm turning away from that, I'm renouncing that, I'm following Jesus no matter what. And then she's been a Christian for like maybe two, three days. And she's gone somewhere to pray and ask God to just remove all of these life-dominating sins. And God speaks to her. Now, I... I'll tell you what, I've been a Christian a while and I have a few times in my life felt like I've come close to hearing an audible voice, the voice of God. 
Now, don't feel bad if you never have, because quite honestly, uh, I think most Christians haven't. And, and, and knowing how God speaks to you is an art that we learn. Um, I remember somebody saying, you know, he felt like God spoke by kind of like pushing him forward. And I was like, oh, most of the time God's speaking by like holding me back. Yeah, don't do that, you know. So, so we learn how God speaks to us. But this gal, she'd been a Christian for like two seconds and God speaks to her. And God says, no, 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 I want to I deal with this other thing. You've never forgiven this person. And I want you to forgive them. And it's like, if you were going to make a list of like her top 10 issues, forgiving this person would not make that list. And yet that was the first thing God wanted to deal with. What does victory look like? It, it, it's very possible. It's very possible that there is victory happening in your life. That there's victory happening in the church. Because if you look around the church in this area, and you might say, you know, it feels like the church is being defeated. Churches aren't growing like they used to. COVID has really slowed down or hindered our ability to reach out. Um, we're, not, we're not sure what the future holds. Are my kids going to experience uh, the same level of, of church and ministry that I experienced? All of these things are, are questions. And in my own life, maybe you're not, maybe you're saying, hey, I'm looking at my own life and I want to experience the victory of God, but I, I just see this and I see this and I see this and it feels like I'm not seeing the victory of God. What does victory look like? Jesus comes on the scene and the prophecy is like, hey, he's going to come and he's going to come and present himself as lowly, not what you'd expect a king to look like. And when he comes, it's not going to be a victory that ends in, in the dominance of, of the people militarily or politically. It, it's going to end in disarmament. That's what victory looks like. But yet, what does he say? Victory is coming. Verse 11 as for you, because of the blood of my covenant, I will free your prisoners. When it says this waterless pit, um, what you should think of is sort of a, um, a cistern. They would dig out these pits and then, you know, like the one time of year they would get rain, the rain would fall in and then they'd collect water in these pits. But then sometimes, you know, it wouldn't rain. You'd have a dry pit um, and they would use them as, as prisons, um, you know, when you read in Genesis that they threw uh, the, the, the 11 brothers through their youngest brother, um, Joseph, down in the well, and then they later got him out and sold him to slaves, but it's probably that waterless pit. Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah is put in prison, but they don't throw him like in a dungeon. They actually just throw him into one of these mostly empty wells. Um, so the idea is, is that you've been, you've been imprisoned. There's no way for you to get out, but God's going to deliver you. So, so he's proclaiming victory because of the blood of my covenant. Now we as Christians, we can read this and we see, oh, this is talking about Jesus. And, and it's not just a literal prison, but we've been set free from sin and death. Re return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Meaning, yes, you've been held in captivity. You've been held in change, but we have hope because of this coming king who we see and recognize as Jesus Christ. And God says, even now I announce I will restore twice as much to you, that this restoration is happening. 
And we see this in, in, in our lives as Jesus comes and makes his presence not just known, not just felt, but engulfing and dominant and victorious. So we know that there's a victory. In fact, it's a total victory. And we know that it comes from Christ. What does that look like? And what's our part to play? Well, first of all, verse 10, as I just uh, just said, is that uh, this victory comes from God. This victory comes from God. Actually, I meant verse 11. But as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, it's nothing that we do. That is so important. In fact, it's one of the things that confuses people because it doesn't fit our model of what victory looks like. Victory looks like me trying harder or me doing better. And I'm not saying that we don't have a part to play, but, but first that victory comes from God. It's because of the, his blood, the blood of his covenant that we have victory. And we're part of it. We, we are beneficiaries of it. We're part of receiving the blessings of that covenant, that agreement. But it's because of his work. So when we say, hey, what's my part in, in victory? Honestly, the first step is, is recognizing that it's, it's the work of God. His grace, his mercy, his power, his forgiveness. And then in verse 11, he says, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So we say, what's my part in victory? Living in it. If, if I continue to live in that pit, oh, you've been set free, the rope's been put down, grab hold, we'll pull you out. And you say, no, I'm good. I'll stay here. You know, while the crowd is shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you're just kind of on the sidelines like, oh, that's interesting. I'm glad something's happening, but I'm not going to participate. It's, it's, it's up to us to step in to the freedom that God has brought us. So first we recognize that we have victory through the power of God. In the book of Titus in the New Testament, Titus was a a pastor uh, on the island of Crete and Paul was, uh, one of the apostles was writing him a letter and, and he said to Titus, it's not by any work of righteousness that we have done. It's according to God's mercies that he has saved us. In another part of the scripture, Paul wrote, it's not of any works that I have done so that no one can boast. Nobody can come and say, look, look at all these things that I've done and that's why God loves me because I'm such a good person. I'm such a hard worker. I'm such a disciplined woman. I'm such a, a, a holy man. Out of all my generation, I'm blameless. No, no, no. It's because of God's work. Victory is when we step into God's work. And finally, victory exists inside the fortress. Verse 11, or sorry, verse 12. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. You've been set free, you've been delivered, but now you need to go into the fortress. Surround ourselves, immerse ourselves in the kingdom, immerse ourselves in the fortress. Who's the fortress? It's God. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Lord, make me more like Jesus. Father, not my will, but your will be done. Bend me to yourself. 
our part in the victory of God is to submit ourselves to him. What if God's victory isn't what you think it should look like? Lord, this is what you want. This is where you have me that I submit to it. And I'm going to trust that even though it doesn't fit, even though I expect a king to look different or act different, even though I expect victory to be different, I see this is from you. I'm going to step into it. And that's the question. God's victory is certain. Total victory. And we're not used to that, right? We are used to Yeah, there's a victory, you win the war, but there's always another battle. There's always another uh, thing to fight. There's going to come an end to the battles. There's going to come an end to the struggle. You know, um, in verse 13, he starts talking about Greece, and you're like, what's going on with Greece? This prophecy covers at least three points in human history. It covers that time we've talked about uh, in the last few weeks in the book of Daniel uh, with the Maccabean Revolt. Uh, a few hundred years before Jesus, where a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes took power and he conquered, including the city of Jerusalem. And, and that was a, um, an offshoot of the empire of Alexander the Great, Greece. And yet some of what is being talked about here speaks of 2,000 years ago when Jesus rode into the city. And yet we know that that's not all it is because Jesus has not yet ruled and reigned from sea to sea to the ends of the earth, like, like it says here um, uh, down in, uh, in verse 10. So, so this is talking about at least three different points of human history. But verse 16 reinforces the certainty of, of God's victory. The Lord their God will save his people on that day. It will happen. It is certain. It's interesting. Back in verse 13, or sorry, back in verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. Start the party. But it hasn't even happened yet. None of this has happened. God's calling his people to start the rejoicing and the celebrating for his victory before it's even happened, before it's even started. And then in verse 13, Hey, I'm going to, yeah, I'm disarming you, but I'm going to, I'm going to set you up. Like God, God's got it planned. The people of Greece, this empire is coming. I take care of them. God's victory is certain. He's calling us to have faith ahead of time. There's a, a man named Hudson Taylor. There's a book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. I highly recommend. It's a classic. And Hudson Taylor was a pioneering evangelist of the gospel into China in the 1800s. And instead of bringing imperialism and colonialism, he brought Jesus. And, and instead of bringing Western culture, he immersed himself in Chinese culture. And he, he learned the language and he observed their, their cultural customs as much as he could. Uh, he, he dressed in the Chinese fashion. He ate the food of the people in those cities and those villages. He did everything he could to just, as the Bible says, be all things to all men so that we might win some to Christ. And his ministry grew, but there actually came a point 
where they had a, a meeting of all of their leaders and all of their, their preachers, and they got together and they said, we have a problem. We don't have enough we don't have enough evangelists to keep doing the work that God's called us to do. And even if we had enough, we don't have enough money to pay for them. And so what did they do? They prayed, they told God their need, and then they started to praise God, praying and singing, and they praised God ahead of time saying, Lord, we trust that you are going to do your work, so we are going to praise you now ahead of time. We're not going to wait for you to do your work. We are going to start rejoicing and praising you, knowing that and trusting that you will lead and you will guide and you will provide and you will do the work you want to do here in China. And they did. And in the next year, they saw missionaries step forward. The, the funding came forward. All of these things that were needed, God be, just began to provide. Now, God's victory is certain. The only question, it's not whether Jesus will win. It's not whether Jesus will reign. It's not whether lives will be changed. None of that's in question. The question is, are we in? If you're not a Christian, if you don't have a saving faith, and I don't care if you've gone to church for years, I, I don't care if you grew up in the church. I don't care if you pray every day. I don't care if you do not have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is not the Lord of your heart, if you have not believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then the first question is, what's keeping you? Come in. Enter the kingdom of heaven. Surrender your life to Jesus. Because Jesus is victorious. It's just a question of whether you're in or not. And if you are in, but like I said earlier, you're, you're missing out on the victory of God because you're, you're trying to get Jesus to fulfill your set of ideas of what victory looks like. Why don't I have victory? Well, I don't have this thing. I don't have that thing. And, and maybe God's saying, I don't want you to have those things. I want to do some different work in you. I'm going to trust the victory. I'm going to trust the victory of God. Not in the way that I think it's going to be, but in the way that God knows it will be and knows it needs to be. I want to end this morning skipping ahead to chapter 14 of the book of Zechariah. In chapter 14, in verse 3, it says this, The Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north and half of the mountain moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for I will extend it to Azel, you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. And on that day, living waters will flow from Jerusalem. 
half of it east to the Dead Sea, half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth, and on that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Why did I finish with that? It's because of this. You might remember this from last week. But we read this last week in Daniel chapter 9 that these 77-year periods have been decreed for God's holy people and his holy city, Jerusalem. And that in the 69th seven-year period, the anointed one would be cut off and there was one seven-year period left. And we talked about it last week, how it's almost like there was a stopwatch. And when Jesus died, click. The stopwatch was paused. Jesus rode into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, from Bethany. And he rode into Jerusalem He rode into Jerusalem in such a way as we have just read in the book of Zechariah that would have identified himself as the Messiah. He openly accepted the praise of the people, which he had refused to do up until that point. And he rode into Jerusalem and he was rejected. Jesus, when he returns, when he returns to this earth in his second coming, I believe from these passages and others that he will return physically to the Mount of Olives. Do I claim to understand everything in those verses we just read? No, I do not. But I I understand this, that I believe Jesus will return physically to the Mount of Olives and once again will present himself. Once again will show himself. And this time he will not be rejected. This time... He will reign and rule. And like it says, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. Total victory. There will be no more. The the time of, of that rebellion will be put to an end and Jesus will rule and reign in righteousness. And we will be there with him. God's victory is certain. And it may not look like what you expect it to, but it's certain and it's total. And the question is, do we let God have that total and certain victory in our lives? And if that's you, and if you say, I need that victory in my life, I'm going to ask you to do the bold thing. And I'm going to ask you to to say so in the chat right now. You can email me, adam at faithonhill.com. You can tell whoever you're watching this with. I need that victory. Cry out to God and he will hear you. That this fortress of hope, this deliverance from the waterless pit through the blood of God's covenant is offered to you and to me. But today is the day to choose because we don't know. We're not guaranteed anything beyond this. What are you waiting for? But know this, that when Jesus rode in on that Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, 
Within a few days, he was rejected as their Messiah. I'm so glad that I have had the chance and that we've had the chance to accept him as our Savior. And I pray that you don't reject him as yours. God bless you. We'll see you this week for our Holy Week uh, videos. And, and we'll see you Friday night for our Good Friday service. And uh, Good Friday service will not be online. It's an in-person only thing. And then Easter Sunday, we will be online and in person at 1030 a.m. God bless you.